This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this second of three podcasts on the theme of creativity, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Sophie Pretorius, art historian, and researcher and archivist for the estate of Francis Bacon, one of the most important figures in 20th century art, and Amber Meda, a global expert in art and design, founder of the Design Miami Fair, advisor to the auction house Christie's, and much in demand as a curator of exhibitions. Sophie, to get us started, can you please reflect on what you believe makes a great artist? Oof. <laughs> um, I... I mean, I'm particularly partial to the expressionist tradition and therefore um, uh, in terms of painting, it's immediacy, I think, that uh, the uh, effect, the ability of a painting to uh, smack you in the face and convey more than words can in a longer format is uh, what I think is painting's utility and, and magic. Is, is that um, more, I'll give you some words, originality? Is it insight, imagination? Is a great artist more productive or persevering? I think it, it's um, a, just ability to abbreviate. I think that's, well, at least in my personal taste, what, what I admire most. Um, I don't think it particularly needs to be original in the sense that there's no nothing new under the sun um but uh, but it, that it acts on your nervous system in a in a in an immediate sense yeah and and if you think about the history of art um are all the great artists is it the same as it was so the great figures from the past like michelangelo or da vinci or bernini and then you think about more contemporary artists, Matisse or Jackson Pollock or Hockney now. Is it the same thing? I mean, are they really comparable? Are they, you know, a Bernini sculpture sort of hits you in the face in the sense <laughs> that you're astounded to be looking at it. Um, but isn't it more now about something else? I don't know, luck or personality? Well, I think the the large difference is the change in patronage of the arts um, that... Uh, largely now art is made and then sold rather than commissioned. Um, and so it is much more based on the artist's individuality, their identity. Bacon is a good example, like sort of the pinnacle example of an artist as brand. Um, his life is almost more famous than his art. But yes, so I think I think uh, Renaissance art in particular uh, was, well, you had the influence of the church, um, but also of uh, the patronic system, um, which uh, plays less and less a part of contemporary art. 
Ah, okay. So there's a sort of so social, economic, cultural context in which the arts made is leaning now more towards art as the product of an individual rather than a, yes, yeah. a school of art or a, a patronage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, was there something in Francis Bacon's past, probably lots of things in his <laughs> past and in his childhood that, that made him so effective as an artist, that made it possible for him to capture in one glance from the viewer's side, um, you know, a, a large vision, you know, an important statement. Well, I think what um, I, I was doing a lot of uh, searching for for uh, comparisons with um, the Montessori method within Bacon's early life, um, and he was he was very ill. This was this is the main um, uh, overbearing theme of his early childhood and his later life is how ill he was. He was highly asthmatic, and he was uh, raised in an Edwardian home. Um, in uh, Anglo-Irish Dublin, uh, well, outside of Dublin. And he was very much seen um, and not heard as a child in the nursery. He didn't go to a formal school until he was 12, um, 13. Even so, he was privately tutored. Um, and he, uh, his, his education in a sense, came entirely from books um, and his his individual will towards learning. And his sister said that he she felt a lot of his adulthood was um, him catching up on the lack of education he felt he had he had in his early years. Was he a voracious reader? So did he make up for formal lessons with a lot of reading? He really did, and he had a a tutor who was a clergyman. Um, and when he was 13 and he'd walk down a little road to his house and uh, he was given lots and lots of books by by this man um, without much structure. And that's how he continued to absorb information is sort of randomly accumulating huge amounts of books and reading them at a ridiculous pace. And have, have you got some of those books now? I mean, is there a, a, an archive of his reading material? Yes, well, most of them... Um, returned to Dublin, uh, which is slightly ironic because he tried to deny uh, his being born in Ireland as much as possible. Um, but uh, his library, the majority of it is in Dublin at the Hugh Lane. Uh, we have quite a large collection of books left over from other studios he had and things. Um, and he had very definite uh, thematic interests. Uh, the Greek tragedies, especially Shakespeare, he felt he had a particular affinity to because of the whole uh, rumor that Francis Bacon the Elder may have been Shakespeare um, or not. <laughs> he, he felt like, well, perhaps I could have been he related to Shakespeare. <laughs> and and um, in the Greek tragedies, Aeschylus, the um, yeah, Aeschylus, the, the, the famous trilogy. Yeah, yeah, he, that was his his. I guess if you were to pick one um, most uh, uh, important work of literature that he returned to again and again. So given that distinctive childhood, is this is a big question. What's the difference between the artist and their art? <laughs> Are they just two realities that, you know, necessarily actually mirrors one another or... 
Well, is the artist their art and vice versa? I think um, it's a bit disingenuous to claim that there is that any kind of separation is entirely possible, but it, especially in Bacon's case, um, there isn't much, particularly because of his brand building. And he would, in in interviews occasionally, uh, say, there's no narrative content to my work. Um, any content you read into it is your problem, not mine. Um, but uh, so much of it has been proven to be based on his life events, his illnesses, um, his particular psychological problems at the time, uh, that he he very much, being a self-taught artist as well, had never having gone to art school, he uh, baked his experience into his art in a way that I think a, a lot of more sophisticated, I don't mean in an in intelligence way, I mean in a schooling way, um, artists are able to to put layers in between them and their creation, whereas Bacon right. Bacon had less of that. This is interesting to to um, me and Barbara because, of course, we we look at children's art and we think about how much is the is the child's creativity um, integral with their being, you know, with their psyche, and because, of course, they they don't have the skills to create a separate brand, if you like, <laughs> of what they do. So their their self-expression is genuine. Mm. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, a, that a person can, like Francis Bacon, can carry that through into adulthood because most people separate their psyche from their outer performance of, you know, work and yeah. family life, whatever. Um, but children don't. So it's interesting that Francis Bacon, as a great artist, was someone who was completely in touch with his his inner being. Yeah, he his favorite oft-repeated quote is "sensation without the boredom of its conveyance," which is a Valerie quote. Um, but it's I was talking to my mother. So my mother homeschooled me, and my sister was Montessori educated and is a Montessori teacher. Um, and she, we were talking about drawings uh, and the fact that I drew a lot as a child. Um, and she was talking about my sister's drawings in the uh, the sort of uh, less structured uh, draw what you would like style of Montessori. And she said, well, uh, Belle would bring them home and um, I wouldn't know what to say <laughs> because I couldn't tell what they were. <laughs> but I... I um, but I think, I mean, she was telling it in a sort of funny way, but um, Bacon is much more of that tradition, uh, I think, especially if you look at his early work, which he tried very hard to destroy. Um, at the beginning, you're looking at it, and you're going, what am I looking at exactly? Um, yeah. But uh, and, and a lot of artists who do go to art school spend a lot of time trying to get back um, in touch with uh, the, the, the intuition that they've so distanced themselves from from through craft. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I know that um, this happens very early on in, in children's education as well, you know, when they leave um, a well-run Montessori school and then go into big school, um, mm. they can find, they're very surprised by how limited their freedom and and um, opportunities to choose directions. And I yes. Think, you know, it's quite a transition. I'm sure the same thing happens in art schools. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so was, it doesn't sound like it, but was he a nice person? I, uh, 
I'm often surprised at uh, the fact that he's not called up more often for his sort of despicable actions. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, not always, not always. Um, and uh, he he was, a, a few diaries have been uncovered recently, uh, written by his cousin Diane, Diana Watson, um, in which she writes uh, as a teenager about their teenage experiences. It's just a teenage, a teenage diary, teenage letters. Yeah. Um, and he, as a teenager, well, he was very, I mean, he was gay and it was very obvious from a very early age that he was. And there's this wonderful story of him turning up to a, a society party uh, dressed as a flapper um, with a sort of eaten bob and um, looking very glamorous and his father being furious about this. But he uh, he was a, a lot more flamboyant and sensitive as a, as a uh, teenager than his myth later on would have you believe. Uh, but he was incredibly generous and loyal to his friends um, and incredibly catty to his enemies. And so it, it depended if he liked you. If he liked you, he was a very, very good person. <laughs> well, maybe he was just more honest. I think yes, people yes. are sometimes sweeter to their enemies than they, than they actually want to be. So. I think that in the Montessori classroom, there's a lot of design and, you know, art at the same time. So there's children painting in the corner, but it, but also children very carefully sorting shapes, you know, and matching colors and in, in the way that designers do. So um, it's interesting that, to me how the two complement one another. Well, I think what's an interesting thing to remember about Bacon is that he began as a designer, um, a furniture designer in the sort of Bauhaus style. Um, and he was, I, he, he played it down, but he was quite successful um, in his, the couple of years that he did it. But when I was uh, reading some of uh, Montessori's work, I, the, the, the whole concept of the child's house uh, the idea that everything's to scale to their little bodies, and I, I love the way she writes with such dignity about about the, the, such respect for the individual um, child and uh, their autonomy. But uh, it's interesting to then look at uh, Bacon's furniture and his paintings that came afterwards. Uh, the idea of world building um, that that uh, you as a designer get to create the world you then live in. Um, I felt quite jealous reading um, Montessori's stuff because it it emphasizes uh, the made for you ness of the world that that you you look after it yourself you clean it yourself you uh, and then you participate with it because it's made for you in the same way that like a treehouse is so deeply exciting to a, a small child and. Uh, the worlds that Bacon created with his early uh, furniture, the worlds he wanted to live in, um, then populated his paintings. And uh, he created this whole sort of lexicon of forms, which uh, became shorthands for ideas. And um, I mean, I, I think uh, not not many people spend as much time looking at his paintings as I do, but uh, they, they, all, uh, they form a system that is... Uh, uh, that makes the paintings, again, more immediate, like I was saying earlier. Yeah, I think it's really interesting 
to think about the intersection of design and art in, in Bacon, where he made that transition, because you can see design in his early work, particularly where mm. he has those structural lines that seem to contain a, an invisible room. Space frame. In, no, space frames. Yeah. That's what they are called. Space frame, yeah. in, which, um, in which he places his figures and gives them context. So he's. I feel like he's still trying to find a solution mm. to his... To his visual communication and mm -hmm. as he shapes his early work particularly yes um barbara do you do you recognize the things that um sophie's referring to in the in the Montessori I, I, attitude i was very struck by the fact that um despite having any formal opportunities to express himself creatively Francis Bacon still found a language of his own in which to express himself as an adult. And so in the Montessori context, you could argue that um, Montessori's belief uh, that the, if the child has got enough freedom, they will find a way how to unfold spontaneously according to what is within them particularly in Bacon's case, where he wasn't subjected to any formal education apart from one person. So there was a lot of scope for him to be himself and uh, express it in that way. And I think that is quite interesting because um, it goes totally against what I said in our previous conversation, that I would want children to have as many experiences as possible to find the language through which to... Um, express their uniqueness or their autonomy? Uh. Well, I, I think what's uh, something uh, Bacon is quoted as having said um, is that he uh, believed that uh, artists were much closer to the idea of childhood than the majority of the population. And um, I think it that a lot of the um, fascination with the alchemical processes of early years uh, learning how absolutely astounding it is that um, children can internalize abstract ideas at the rate they do when they're so young. Um, I mean, the magic of it is so fully articulated in Montessori's work, but um, the distance from that alchemy that you gain as an adult when you master things and you can use the shorthands you've developed, like numbers and letters and so on, um, the the artists one of the artists tasks is to emphasize how astounding that process is and so you do stay much closer and i do think to an extent bacon's um uh development as a as an artist in his late years because he only actually painted in a way that he was willing to acknowledge in his late 30s early 40s um so it was a sort of uh uh, a rebirth in a sense he was uh, he was uh uh revisiting the th things that he perhaps missed as a as a child but that is absolutely fundamental to how we all navigate our life uh, if you are an artist or a person in other <laughs> profession we constantly resonate to uh, the unfulfilled wishes of our childhood or the issues that have pained us or the joys of what our childhood has given us. And that's why early education is so absolutely fundamental 
And your early experiences are so important because what you absorb until the age of six, um, it's really becomes part of you. Yeah. Well, I was discussing with my mother. So I, uh, was, I, as I said, homeschooled with only my brother until I was 10. And she was describing my um, difficulty <laughs> playing with others when I uh, first discovered them, uh, that they wouldn't listen to me um, and that they often took the ball away. And I <laughs> was very <laughs> upset about that. Um, but uh, I I think, well, the, the emphasis in Montessori's work on... Uh, uh, equity and playing well with others literally um is is another large part i think of the utility of it that both and it's it's a bit much to compare me and bacon but we both had very isolated childhoods and i think it plays a large a large part in your your future development not to have had um a variety of so people he, to compare yourself to i think you can any any adult looking at um, Bacon's work is going to feel moved and and disturbed um, by what they see. So, to what extent is is he dealing with in his art this sort of suffering and torture that he felt with his illnesses and with his isolation and so on? Do you do you feel that they're directly related or that? Actually, his subject matter is more to do with the world around him as an adult than it is to do with his um, suffering when he was young. Well, when uh, recently uh, I uh, did a lot of work on his medical records, which came to light in the last couple of years, um, and it, I started reading them just as an interesting contextual source and then I realized how to what degree he would have an operation and then three days later paint uh, a picture in which that operation was depicted. And so he was using his own body as source material to a large degree. And his being unwell, um, his identifying with his suffering um, and enjoying it, he was a masochist, uh, proudly so. Um, it was a, a, a very literal way of, of gaining mastery over pain. Um, and I think his bravery is something which is not often spoken about, but uh, definitely comes to the fore when you read his his medical records. That that he had at some point al along the way picked up um, the idea that uh, that facing up to a problem and um, and approaching it headlong was the way to deal with it, to to fall back into it rather than to run away. Yeah. And and know, knowing his studios and seeing having seen so many photos and accounts of how his studio was organized and I think your archives are actually in the one in his London yes. studio. Yeah. Um how thinking about it and your childhood how would you compare an artist's studio to a child's playroom? Well, the I was looking at um who's that? I don't know his name, that very famous architect who did some Montessori schools that are very beautiful. In Holland? Yes. I, I can't remember his name, but... It begins with an H, doesn't it, sorry? maybe? Does it begin with an H? It's an H, yes. 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 Quite a longish um, name. Oh, I, I was just looking at them this morning, and they're astoundingly beautiful and so crisp and minimal. Um, and uh, <laughs> Bacon Studio was certainly not that. Um, I 
I do think that the the Montessori objects, the ones, uh, the sort of basic ones with the cubes and the rods and things, um, have have a an affinity with artist studios in that many artists work from source material which has many functions and is returned to again and again in different situations and used as a tool um, to further play or further work. Uh, but uh, Bacon thrived on chaos. That was his, or at least he said he did. Uh, he said, I believe in deeply ordered chaos. That's one of the quotes that goes on mugs and things. But um, the the Montessori's um, discussions of grace in her writing, uh, the sort of implication that by allowing a child freedom, they will conquer chaos by themselves, um, I think is reflected in the the architecture of of at least the Montessori schools I have seen. I love, yeah. there's a, a part, a line from one of Maria's books where she says um, that people believe that young children love bright garish colours, but that's just because they haven't been given the choice that given the choice, young children um, have taste. And she just leaves it at that. They just have taste and you force these bad colours on them. And the the lack of yellow, I find that quite strange. Um, but it does, it, le it lends a lot more calm to the classroom. Uh, lack of yellow, lack of orange. Uh, it's this conversation about aesthetics and young children has given me an opportunity to rethink some of the things that I have learned as a Montessori practitioner because I now um, look after my granddaughters and uh, my daughter is incredibly particular in providing uh, a really beautiful layout for all the toys and she is choosing these beautiful toys which I so enjoy playing with but you know <laughs> um certainly our oldest um granddaughter doesn't always go for them out of her first choice and um so yes we as adults provide this richness uh for the children and they absorb it unconsciously um but for my granddaughter um pink is still she has started with this love of yellow and i thought yes fantastic and uh, it's converted into this hideous service of the pink which is the <laughs> story of i suppose every girl today with exceptions where parents are consciously forbid that thing in their household uh, um, but she does have an eye so she notices when um, um, I've recently produced this pair of shoes that I have had for a long time where they are all embroidered and each shoe is different with different animals and she said but granny they are so beautiful are you wearing them every day <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly how childhood responds to something when they love something they want to have it around them all the time and I said actually I love them so much I just look at them and I hardly ever wear them oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's absolutely the difference between uh, what how child reacts to beauty and how we might do as adults yeah, yeah, the the uh, reluctance to consume something yeah. as an adult is is definitely learned. Have you ever um, met 
well, anyone, a, um, a prodigious child that you believed was going to grow up to be a great artist, someone who, you know, was pretty obvious when you encountered them. And I wonder if when people met Francis Bacon, whether they had that impression that he was going to grow up to be an important person in the culture. But, um, you know, I know that, Amber, your children attended a Montessori school in London, so was it easy to spot the children who were who were going to um, make a name for themselves? Yeah, I mean, definitely there are kids you can tell who they just revel in in the creative process, and that that that's clearly their output. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, you can spot an interesting mind. You know, there there are children who are so clearly in their own individual um, space and have a way to express themselves. And it doesn't have to be through, through drawing. Obviously it can, it can be, you know, it can manifest through their body, through the way they hold themselves while they're talking. Um, I I just find it fascinating really to watch all children. I mean, whether they're stand out in one particular thing, but to just watch and see how different each child is and how their approach is, unique to the world and 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 the lens through which they see the world is just personal to them um even let's say i mean even with my kids just to see how two children born within the space of a you know just over a year i don't know why one would assume that siblings are the same because i've lots of friends who are, you know, siblings and they're very different people, but somehow you assume that your kids are going to be somewhat made of the same fabric. And they are to some extent, but, you know, my two children couldn't be um, more more different. Um, the things Do you think that, it's because the second one is reacting somewhat to the first? Is there an interplay there? Yeah, I mean, and the first one is reacting to the second. I mean, definitely that that you know having having a sibling and and responding to that sibling is is definitely a big part of it. Um, I think it's partly genetics. I think it's part you know your own individual character and, and mannerisms. And um, yeah, it's. It, I, I mean, I have to say, as a mother, the the one of the things that I think has been most eye-opening has been seeing so many children through the friendships that my daughters have made and, and just getting to know so many small children through, through their school settings. And, you know, if you're interested in people, I'm interested in people and culture and, you know, language. And it's um, been really satisfying and a really fun adventure to be on just to have like a whole new universe open up where you get to see all these different little people come to life and and just how unfiltered their reactions are and their language and yeah their personalities also changing you know you 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 think you know them and then and then you're surprised and you don't know who they are and then and then you think oh okay now I've now I know who you are and this is what you're gonna you know you're gonna feel and say and and then they switch and yeah it's it's um it's a real journey it's that sort of cliche the journey yeah I found this when I was helping when my sister was doing her Montessori examinations she was 
um, or uh, coursework. She was sending me her essays and I was reading them. And the the writing down of children's behavior, uh, my life is very unpopulated by children right now. So it was strange reading about them, but it's impossible to write about them without it being hilarious at all times. There was one story of a, a little boy who had invented a, a game in which his ear was telling him things. So he would say, well, you have to do this because well, wait, wait, I have to, and then he cup over his ear. Okay, my ear has told us all <laughs> that we have to, and, and you can't write dryly about that. I, I don't think it's specifically Montessori. I think that um, the earliest community have come to realize that the only way how you can get to know the children is by observing them and um, then... Um, you know, it's you observe it, you think, this is amazing, I must remember it. But if you don't write it down, you forget it because something happens so very quickly again. Uh, but I uh, I loved the way how Ambra described um, uh, the new world that has opened this becoming a mother. And I, I think that that's what I love about working with young children because you continuously learn something new. And yes, each one of them is, there are lots of similarities, and yet each one of them is different, and each one of them has got this potential to be somebody. And um, I just wish we had tools to help that potential of somebody to unfold a little bit more, because as they go into compulsory education, often that potential kind of turns into the social conventions of the school and um, society, and we lose that spirit of the child um, that is so vital uh, in the birth to six. So, yeah, I think that's that's why we should try to understand a little bit more about the impact childhood makes on adulthood and just prolong it a little bit longer. Sophie, you mentioned that... Um, that uh, Bacon kind of carried through his childhood into his adult work. Um, from what you know about him, what what could we do um, in schools or in working with children or just being parents? What can we do to preserve the young child's creativity and imagination as they grow up and move into, you know, their adult roles? I think that... Um... Well, Bacon uh, suffered from a lot of sort of chastising differences. Um, I mean, he was very obviously different from a very young age. Um, And I think uh, contemporary culture is a lot more accepting of uh, differences in children um, and their uh, desires to express them. Um, what uh, What I find quite an interesting thing to think about. And I was thinking as I was reading um, Montessori's work is uh, to what degree a limit, she talks a lot about eliminating boundaries that, um, that uh, if a child is uh, hung, if there's no bread, uh, a child is struggling to focus and um, therefore you're trying in a metaphorical sense to eliminate the hunger for bread in lots of situations. But, to what extent eliminating obstacles um, detrimentally affects children? Like, at what stage have you eliminated too many obstacles? Um, and I think, given the time uh, 
Montessori was writing, she was still fighting against the obstacles, trying to erase some of them. But it's, um, we may have come to a point in which too many, because children need things to bite into and fight against. Um, and therefore, maybe, maybe we've gone a bit too far in the other direction. Interesting challenge and interesting thought. Um, you know, I think that life always presents you with challenges, even when you want to make it as smooth as possible as a parent. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, well, yeah. the smoothness can can be the challenge. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, we often want the things we have not experienced. So when my daughter was small, she absolutely adored her nursery school teacher, whom I perceived to be quite a hideous person, <laughs> uh, to, to be very extreme. And it was because she demonstrated teachers which were not present in my behavior. And again, it shows you the curiosity of uh, the small child in kind of embracing whatever presents themselves. So for me, it is always about richness of opportunity and, um, Perhaps being there as a careful listener, somewhere in her writing, Montessori talks about walking alongside the child. And for me, that is being there should I be needed, but not being too much in the front, not putting too many of my own ideas there, but just being present. Um, and listening, because by listening, you can actually do quite a lot in this behind the scenes, which makes it easier. But um, it, it is a real challenge to support children in their journey through life. And as a parent, I'm now concerned about two lots of children, <laughs> my own children and the grandchildren. And I have very similar reactions towards the well-being of my grandchildren as I have towards my my own children. And you bask in when your child does something well for their children and you are very anxious when they struggle with being parents. And being a parent is a really, really tough job today. Yeah. I quite like when she talks about misbehavior in children as um, a grasping for a scaffold that has not yet been provided and that if 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 you were to listen to the misbehavior as a sign of something missing then it would be perhaps be easier to sort it out but you know many of the things that montessori writes about children are written from the perspective of a mother who has had to give up her child and um there is this very romantic view of the child um, in her writing, which I love. That's that's why I went to study Montessori, because of her picture of the child. But um, So it provides inspiration, but it is not always realistic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does It does make you think of them as little angels in your life. It can't always be like this. I wanted to ask um, how... In general, because I haven't read very much Montessori, how pain is dealt with in the classroom if a child is suffering in or falls over or something like this? First of all, she has never given us any guidance on that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and doesn't happen. <laughs> that's probably good. Um, um, I, I think that 
there is a trend of thought that to support the child's um, independence, um, we should not have too much contact with them. So in my formal training 35 years ago, um, we were told not to pick up the children, put them on your lap. or um, But that was dealing with slightly older children, three to six-year-olds. Um, we now have got babies in our classrooms and the relationship has to be fundamentally different. The baby actually needs to experience your kind of protection, the, the, the arms of the adult around them. They need that physical contact. Um, even though some of them may push you away, they don't <laughs> like it, but you need to offer it. Um, I think that what I would like to explore a little bit more with, and with teachers is how pain is experienced because often child's behavior is a manifestation of, a of pain, which is shown as being naughty or misbehaving and adults find that sometimes quite challenging to their own self rather than seeing it as a manifestation of something else right. and um, uh, having worked with children who have come from disadvantaged environments in to Montessori settings to think that we could offer them more than anything was the clarity of the environment the order in it um, the predictability of it and for them, um, just being very even in everything that you do, your behaviors, your speech, your mannerisms was the biggest gift you could give them. That was the most supporting for them. So, but I, I think that we have moved a lot as a community in acknowledging that children have difficulties and verbalizing. I can see that you are finding it difficult. I am here if you need me is probably the tool most used these days. The idea of, of a child um, as, a, as a unique individual with wants and desires, um, it's, it's touching to read the sort of vitriol in her writing because of it's so um, taken for granted in today's education system, or at least um, in the West, uh, that, that she's so adamantly campaigning against the way children were treated um and uh i i also really enjoyed reading about the uh revolutions in hygiene and things that, that <laughs> meant more children were living on so now they become more valuable there's less of them yeah i i think that um because she was a doctor her attitudes to care of the child and how she began and i always loved seeing that, how she, you know, the children were weighed and measured and the yeah, yeah. good diet was prescribed. Um, we have now taken it to a totally new level by saying we only have organic food, which becomes the marketing tool of the nursery. Yeah. I'm not really for that one. But um, anyway, the um, I think that she kind of, meant, she embraces the child uh, for this as a promise to humanity. I think that the social message, her social message is really, really powerful. And it places real responsibility on us as adults to help these um, new people to become strong individuals, to be able to challenge 
whatever is happening in their lives. And that's so for that, you have to be incredibly brave, almost like the artist who is trying to share their message against all odds. I mean, in uh, in terms of Francis Bacon, I think that he just needed to create that work. It's, um, I don't think he had much choice. It well, became a mission in his life. Well, I think that the, the sort of threefold structure in a lot of Montessori's writing of... Um, well, she talks about uh, giving children a frame, not giving them uh, information as such, like content, but a frame for content. And that whole, um, what is it? It's uh, observation, comparison, and then judgment, um, which is, I guess, now a dirty word, judgment, but it is. It's discretion, this and not this. Um, it's uh, a method by which to accumulate new data and understand it, integrate it into yourself. Um, and I think to a large extent, Bacon's art was his structure. That's how he figured out a way to be, especially given the suffering he was experiencing on a day-to-day -day level. It's, it's observe, differentiate, um, make a judgment. And then in his case, and I guess the last step is to push it back out and say, well, this is what, this is my contribution um, and the fact so many people, and I guess this sort of obscene prices Bacon fetches at auction show we all looked at it and went, yes, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> we understand. Okay, that seems like a good place to stop. Uh, thanks again to Barbara and David, Sophie and Amber. Uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.